This podcast is proudly presented by Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. It's 2023 and modern climbers are more accomplished than ever. And we don't just mean on the wall. Patagonia has always seen the value in being bold, whether it means pushing high points or having the audacity to demand more for our planet. So what's it mean to be a strong climber? Full commitment to the sport and to our communities. It means not just working towards futuristic first ascents, but also a better future. And we aren't going to get there alone. For Patagonia's 50th year, we're looking forward, not back. And together, we can prioritize purpose over profit to protect this planet. Get involved, read stories to get you out there, and join a community that values what we do off the wall as much as we do on. Find out more at patagonia.com slash climbing. We get support from Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort, but most importantly, your snacks. Founded in 1898, Deuter believes in fit, comfort, and working in the long term to offset CO2 emissions by teaming up with Climate Partner to invest in social and climate offset projects worldwide for select product, including their guide and ver trail climbing packs. Deuter packs are PFC-free, meaning no forever chemicals, and they honor their promised life time warranty since their packs were meant to be on your back and not in landfills. So you can focus on way cooler things like puppies, pocket bacon, and getting sendy, whether at the crag or in the Alpine. Today we're going to talk about Ali. Ali means come on in a way or to encourage. Okay, we are done with the simple and normal uses of Ali. Now let's cut to the chase. LA Outdoor Personal Care products are made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Their rich and repairing ingredients for their skincare collection are inspired by desert landscapes, and their simple and recyclable packaging makes them eco-sustainable. LA commits to protecting the open spaces that we love by partnering with the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. That's LA Outdoor, A-L-L-E-Z. LA Outdoor, made by climbers for those who love the outdoors. Who is Otsun? More than prolific crack climbing gloves, Otsun has been making innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance since 1998. Their climbing shoe designs are all original, developed and manufactured in Czech Republic, and 100% gender neutral. Beyond their sticky rubber, Otsun is renowned for their hardware, harnesses, and the biggest, lightest crash pad on the market. Find your new favorite climbing shoes and accessories at Backcountry, Moose Jaw, Camp Saver, and Amazon. There are those who see grief as the final form of love, this one final act that we give to those we've lost. It's also been said that it's the price we pay for love, which is a funny way to look at it. But these two things unrelentingly go hand in hand. I do think that, in some ways, we're all in the same club. Some of us just don't know it yet. And others already have the Lifetime subscription, aka the worst club in the world. On September 2nd, 2021, Tara lost her dad to COVID. But it's complicated. During that time, well-meaning folk comprised of climbers, liberal activists, even celebrities, condemned those who refused vaccination. Social media was filled with far-left and far-right criticism. Like we said, it's complicated. A year and a half after officially joining the Dead Dad Club, the club nobody wants to join, and membership is automatic, Tara sent one of her hardest multi-year climbing projects. But this story isn't really about that. Well, sorta. It's about the acknowledgement that grief from loss is also a reflection of love. And we think that The Good Place nailed it best. So picture a wave in the ocean. You can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts when it passes through. You can see it and know what it is. And it's there. And then it crashes into the shore and it's gone. But the water's still there. And a wave is just a different way for the water to be for a little while. You know, it's one conception of death for Buddhists, that the wave returns to the ocean where it came from and where it's supposed to be. 
Grief is the thing that can stop you dead in your tracks. It's sort of like the existential testimony to the significance of someone we've lost. And that significance endures time and space, and oceans and mountains. And you can be certain that behind all deep grief, there's also great love. When 2020 came around, I felt like things were kind of progressing in my career and it felt like I was in a good place. I was actually coming out to Oregon a lot during that time because I was working on to bowl at Smith and I toiled so much. Like I actually got really, really close the first year that I tried it. I like one hung it super fast and I just really felt like I was going to do it. And then it just got super cold. And then the next year I was like sort of injured and I just like couldn't get to where I was before. But in any event, I was like toiling and suffering on my project like climbers do. And meanwhile, I was spending all this like really quality time with my dad and I was in Bend and like, that was a lot of time that I was there, two toiling trips of not sending. And I'm really grateful for that time. It's funny cause I like reflect on to bolt or not to be cause it's this like defining climb that I always wanted to do. I don't know if I want to go back and try that route again. Cause it's like, I actually don't know if my shoulder can handle it because it's so shouldery. I want to do it, obviously, but like, I, I'm so glad I didn't do it. You know, if I had done it, I would have just left Oregon. And I'm, I'm glad I toiled and I'm glad that I split my tips and I'm glad I had bad days on it because then I could go have good days with him in Bend. And he came one day and like, he was always really funny about climbing. Like I would show him the climbing videos for routes I wanted to do. And he would always be like, I don't know, like climbers, they just kind of like sit around and look at their fingertips and stuff. And so he like comes and he sits under to bolt and he like watches me while I try. It's not the first time he came to Smith and Watch, but he came and watched me one day on to bolt and he like took just, I, I don't even know, like, how do you even be a stereotypical dad? Like he just like took this erratic iPhone video where he's like zooming in and out at like rapid speeds. It was just so funny to me because it was such a dad moment like and then he's like sitting under to bolt and he he's like hey do you have a piece of sandpaper and so i give him a piece of sandpaper and he starts like sanding his skin he's like yeah this is what climbers do now i feel like a real climber and he's like sitting there sanding his skin like looking and making eye contact with everyone who walks by <laughs> he was just a character <laughs> Um, but so my dad was adopted and so I looked like him when I was little and all the way through being an adult and I think that that definitely tied us in a way that we never really talked about but my identity as a Native American is tied to him and it always was and I think that you know every part of childhood going through school you know being made fun of or whatever there's so many aspects of what you look like that become who you are and I can't think about what I look like without thinking about him because it's like that's where it came from. I look like her too but in different ways you know. It kind of started for me when I started doing work for Natives Outdoors but I wanted to I wanted to help with stories that helped Native communities like I always thought about my grandma my dad's mom and like how her story could have been different if things were different. And it wasn't until later that I realized why things happened the way that they did for her. But anyways, I just, I wanted to do something like on the back end. <laughs> and I started to like lean into Natives Outdoors and like do projects that benefited Native communities. I really trust Len and that's why I felt comfortable doing that. I think it can be like kind of scary to get into that work because not everybody's doing the right thing, you know. But I really believe that Len is, and so that was easy for me. And then anyways, my dad, he like leaned more into it too. And I just felt like just as I was starting to like understand my own identity journey, my dad died and all of that went with him. I mean, I still want to do work that like benefits native people, but I guess I feel yeah, it's just weird. It's like, I'm still me, but now I'm me without him. And me without him is like really confused about who I am in general. Okay, I'm on You were listening to the Love of Climbing podcast. It's a funny sense of uncomfortable climbing. I was like, wow, this is the opposite of my podcast, but you know, here we go. <laughs> 
I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing. Is it to the, or to, do you say to For the Love of Climbing podcast? I'm Alex Honnold, and you're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. Yeah, yeah, I see it. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. This is not a climbing podcast. Well, sort of. It's a funny, sad, and somewhat uncomfortable podcast about choosing vulnerability. Here's the show. <laughs> Easy cheesy. Hey, a quick heads up. This episode discusses adoption and briefly mentions suicide. My name is Tara Kirshner, and I am in Boulder, Colorado, where I live. And I've been climbing for, I don't know, I think almost 20 years now. Wait, hold on. I'm not like a mathematician, so this is a little challenging. I think it's around like 18 years. I found climbing and was learning who I was outside of my parents' house. I grew up super religious, and I'm not religious, and so that transition was tough. And I think during that time, having climbing was great. And then I ended up getting divorced really early. So I really fell in love with climbing during that time. So we started dating and I was living with him out of wedlock and my parents found out and it was like fucking intense. Like it was really, really intense. This was probably like the hardest time in my life with my dad. He was sort of going through this interesting religious transition and like he always was like, you would say like a man of God. That's probably what he would say, but like, he like stopped his deep ties to organize religion at a certain point. And if anything about religion makes it into the podcast, I wouldn't want to like disrespect where he is coming from, even though I don't necessarily agree with it. But at that time I was like so fresh out of the nest and I had decided I wasn't gonna go to church anymore. And so when I met my first husband, even though he was an atheist, both of us kind of leaned quickly towards marriage. And I don't really know why he was my first boyfriend and like, he found out that I was living with this guy and it was this really, really crazy family drama and I didn't talk to my dad for a while. And as I got older, like it just, stuff like that didn't bother him at all, you know? I grew up in Bend, Oregon and um, my parents were really wonderful. Like honestly, I obviously as an adult, we all find the things that we talk about in therapy. We're like, I'm traumatized by you. <laughs> I think I was mostly like the religion stuff for me was really hard and I connected super deeply with my dad always and I didn't really have that as much with my mom. Yeah, I think you usually get one. If it's not your father, it's going to be your mom, but you only usually only get one that you're really, really close to and I don't really know why that is. I really wanted to like show, I think, my true self to my mom for the first time. Like I told her for the first time I didn't believe in God like after my dad died. And I think that was really hard for her to hear, but it felt really good for me to say. But I also said things like, I've done acid, which is something I always wanted to tell my dad, but I never did. Because one time he texted me, I shit you not, he texts me, I'm on acid. And I get a text from him that says, have you ever done acid? I will never forget that moment. And I think that is just such an indication of like our closeness. We have always been very, very tied to each other. and on such a level that I, it's like incredibly hard to explain. And the fact that he texted me that is so bizarre to me, but not surprising at all. I couldn't say anything. I was like tripping too hard to like look at my phone correctly, but I showed everyone I was with cause I was like, this is insane. And at his funeral, I remember everyone kept coming up to me and saying, your dad would call me every week. So many people told me that, that I was like, that is unreasonable that he would call and contact so many people all the time, but he did. And that's just who he was. Like anytime someone had a birthday or if someone was sick or any kind of event, he would text me and I would text them, you know? I feel a little bit in the dark now because he's not. He was just so consider it. I think because he felt quite abandoned by his mother and didn't have a father growing up, like a biological father. He had an adoptive family, but they were older and they died when he was not that old. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he was such a good dad and so empathetic. And so, yeah, he was a really like amazing person. I think anyone who knew him would say that about him. 
but he had depression because of being adopted and like just like the stuff that goes along with being adopted you will always well i I don't want to say this definitively for everyone but for him he felt abandoned you know especially because his mom she died young she left him with a babysitter essentially and then never came back and then um she died of substance abuse like shortly after that and so his like original last name is not Reinban. One of the most common microaggressions heard by adoptees is you should be grateful, often from well-intentioned folk who perceive adoption as this shining beacon of hope. The concept of adoption exists across cultures and countries and can be traced back as early as ancient Rome. Eventually, inevitably, this early idea evolved into a complex internationally recognized law. In many instances, this concept is deeply inflected by evangelical Christianity. You should be grateful, as in the adoptee is so fortunate to have been given an opportunity to do this precious thing called life. But this kind of language centers adopters, not adoptees. And what's underneath it and often less talked about are the systemic conditions that make it necessary to give up a child in the first place. Transracial adoptees' lives can be one of love and loneliness. If you can't speak your own language, don't know the traditions, or celebrate your heritage, you become an outsider everywhere. These layers of loss can go on for generations. Tara and her dad started exploring his birth culture at a pace they both felt comfortable with together. Because I've always identified as exactly who I am, like as Native American and white. That's who I've been my entire life. That's who I was when we went to the res to try to become tribal members, but we couldn't fill out the family tree because he didn't know who his dad was. And so he didn't want to register if we couldn't register me. But anyways, like, I think for him for a long time, it hurt him, you know, it abandoned him. It left him and he's like, I don't want to talk about the native stuff. It was hard for him to connect to that part of himself. And then when I started to like lean into Natives Outdoors and like do projects that like benefited Native communities, he like leaned more into it too. And yeah, exactly. We were learning together. It felt better to do it with him. I went to the res for the first time without him not that long ago. And it's hard, like it's different, you know, it's just a scary thing. And I think it's really all of it everything that I've just explained is like a pretty common disconnected native story. You know, you're just confused about who you are. I mean, I'm not saying it's easy for other racial identities, but I think native specifically can be confusing. I don't know if you read there, there, but pretty good book. It's kind of, it's sad, but it's like a lot about disconnected native people living in the city and like what it looks like to try to understand your native identity. Man, that last film, that really got me. The film that Tara's referring to is Precious Leader Woman, directed by Cassie DeCollin and written by Spencer O'Brien and L. Maya Tellfeathers. This documentary takes us through Spencer's professional snowboarding career as she reconnects with her indigenous culture. Names are given by the aura you project and the things you do. People aren't remembered by what you say, but what you do. You could have a million words and say nothing, but when you do something, they'll remember. No matter who you are as, as Indigenous people, is that throughout a certain time of your life, if you're not connected to your culture already, it'll start bubbling up with inside of you. There's anything from DNA memory, from passed down from your ancestors, to just the simple calling of your dreams. All I wanted to be was a snowboarder, so I never cared about people knowing anything other than that. She's a precious leader woman. You know, just by looking at her, she strikes you right away. That really got me. That felt really, uh, that hit close to home because, so we also have, just like any other Native person I know, has boarding school stuff. And that was when I learned about the boarding schools is when I finally understood, like, why, why my grandma took the path that she did. She was not raised by her parents. She was raised by her grandma. 
I think her mom died when she was quite young. And it's just like this trickle down thing, you know? And then you have my dad who had depression and that like really until like the moment he died, that was so there for him. And so a part of the conversations that I was having with the nurses um, was his depression. So the boarding schools across North America, it was just one of the things that was used to basically eliminate the native race and native people. Children and young people were taken and put in boarding schools. And I have the records from my family's time in boarding schools. And you just see the in and outs. It's like, you know, those like old report cards that were like handwritten. It's like that. And then it has like her name on it. And when she was brought in and records that like relate to her time there. And then you look, I looked at the family tree and what happened, including like an extremely long obituary that my great grandmother has because she was like a prominent member of the tribe. And yeah, it's just really sad. You kind of see right when the family starts to fall apart. My dad had told me that he had thoughts of suicide from when I was quite young. After he died, I had a conversation with my mom and, and my mom was surprised. She was like, I didn't know that you knew from that young. You know, I didn't know he was telling you that. But my dad and I were just so close, like we talked about so much. Between 1819 and 1969, thousands of Native American children, some as young as four, were forced from their homes and sent to these boarding schools. Over 400 schools have been identified across 37 states in the U.S. Upon arrival, Native children were stripped of all physical markers of their indigeneity. A first-of-its-kind federal study uncovered more than 500 deaths, likely due to overcrowding, malnutrition, and unsanitary conditions. Secretary of the Interior Deb Haaland is the first Native American to hold a cabinet post and initiated the study with the hope that it can inspire long-term support for indigenous communities. I am here because my ancestors persevered. I stand on the shoulders of my grandmother and my mother. And the work we will do with the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative will have a transformational impact on the generations who follow. I think I always knew that if my dad got COVID that he would either become very sick or die. And so it was during a time in which the park was open, but we were trying to keep it open. Um, one of the stipulations was that people would wear masks. And Oregon was particularly strict, way more than Colorado, it seemed like. And my dad was so sweet, like, I wanted to wear a mask, not for me. I'm like doing it for him. And he like wore a mask for me because he, knew it's what I wanted, but I just wanted to keep him safe. There's this interesting dynamic around COVID where one of the first things that people ask you is, did they have pre-existing conditions? Which is kind of interesting because if you have a family member that dies of cancer, like they wouldn't ask that, even though those sorts of things also affect, you know? It was just weird. The information around COVID was so fascinating to me because it created this really weird social dynamic. But yeah, my dad had asthma just from working in construction for so many years. And he also had had a heart attack like several years ago and his heart wasn't great. And I just wanted him to be healthy. And like, he had always kind of told me like, if you lived in Bend, like we could go to the gym together. And I always carried this guilt uh, with me about that. Cause I knew that if I did live in Bend, I would, because we talked every day. He would often call me from his walks, but it was hard for him to motivate to do the walks. And if I was just there, then he would have done them more and then maybe he would have been like healthier, you know. And nobody knows what the right way to talk about death is when one of your friends goes through something like that or someone in your community. I don't know. People just don't know how to talk about death. I mean, I didn't. It's not a secret that we don't like talking about death but we do have a lot of questions. There's something about it that makes us want to assign meaning to it because otherwise we're just existing on a giant spinning rock through outer space. And when it happens to someone we know, we tend to look a little harder and that is so profoundly human. 
I, I did the same thing when a friend of mine died. My first question was, how exactly? It's like I had to understand the exact situation in which he died, and I don't know why. And I caught myself in that moment because he actually died a couple days after my dad died. And, and in a weird way, his girlfriend and I have become closer through the experience, you know? Even though our experiences are really different. I think just having someone to see you. Eliza sees, I mean, you also, you know, you go through loss and you can see it. Eliza said it really well where I really like this because I love Harry Potter, but in the part in Harry Potter where he can see the Thestrals after he's had loss in his life and he's seen death, Eliza was like, going through loss is like, all of a sudden you can see the Thestrals, you know, you can see more colors of the rainbow. Your highs are higher than you ever thought, your lows are lower than you ever thought they could be. It's like the spectrum of color that you see is more broad after loss. So it's like, yes, life can be more beautiful, I think, after loss, weirdly, but like, it can also be like so much darker than you ever thought it could be. I think that's really hard to explain to people. And I wonder why it is that it's so universal that we talk about it in such a way that it's like, like, you're, we talk about it in a way like, I'm hungry. I have grief, like, I'm hungry, I'm no longer hungry. I have grief, I no longer have grief. Like, I think grief is just something that you carry with you for the rest of your life. And it's always there, whether or not you can look at it or not. Sometimes I like have those moments where like my heart drops and I, I think about something that makes me really sad and the pain, the depth of that drop is just as deep as it was the day that my dad died. It's just whether or not I choose to go there or not. But it's weird because it's like there is a, it's like there is a spatial feeling to it. I don't know how to explain that. It's like when you like go over a bump in the car and you kind of, it's like there, there's a distance in which your heart drops. And I think the distance is the same. It's just, I've learned to put some guardrails around that hole, you know? This is gonna sound ridiculous, but so after my dad died, while he was in the hospital, I read him the last, or the first book of Harry Potter <laughs> over the phone because I was talking to him every day and I was there on the phone with him all day, every day. I basically stopped my life when he went to the hospital with COVID. I just stopped doing everything. And, you know, I don't know. He, sometimes he couldn't talk. Like as it got worse, as his condition got worse, he was put on, not on a ventilator, because he was terrified of a ventilator, but he was put on a CPAP machine. He was on oxygen, he could barely talk like at the end. And so it was like better for me to just be reading something. And after he died, I decided to finish the series in an audiobook. And I listened to the entire Harry Potter series from book two to the finish repeatedly for about a year and a half straight. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't let myself sit in it you know and I have these moments where like I know that I still haven't really let myself it's hard it's really hard I've reflected on it mm -hmm. a lot I wanted to do this podcast yeah. it's like tough to go there but it's important and I had this moment the other day where I was like walking my dog and my podcast died or like my phone died or something so I like didn't have anything to listen to and then this hawk like flew across the sky and I always think about him when I see hawks because of course we want to like tie the people who are no longer here to things that are and I had this realization that like he's finally free free of his like depression and free of the pain he's not in pain he's free of like his anxiety and stress and just like that constant having to work to like stay afloat yeah what kind of feelings does that bring up it made me feel like I was being a little bit unfair by not letting him just be free I was like, I just want him to stay here. I want it to stay as close as it can to me because I don't want to let him go. Mm -hmm. So then I watched the bird like fly majestically away into the sunset and I was like, all right, that's nice, whatever. I had this crazy moment actually where 
Have you seen the show Reservation Dogs? Mm -hmm. So I watched this one episode where they're talking about someone who passed away. And they're, like, sitting on this roof at a job site, a construction job site, which is, like, fitting because of all my dad's years in construction. And they see this big, like, thing in the sky. And it's meant to be, like, a spirit in that moment. And in that episode, they, like, see it. And they're acknowledging it as one of the characters, Daniel, who has passed away. And... I'm watching the episode and I'm looking at the thing, kind of thinking like as a video editor, I'm like, that looks not realistic, you know? And I kind of laughed at it. And then I had a thought where I was like, well, that would be nice, dad. Could be cool if you showed up like that. (laughs) I was like, whatever. Next day I drive to Durango for like the natives outdoors retreat. And I see this like huge flock of birds that made me think of my dad. And I was like, I'm gonna stop, I'll stop. I'll stop and take a photo. So I pull over and I turn the car around. As soon as I turn the car around, in the sky is this big identical orb thing. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I took some photos of it because I was like, I feel insane right now. And I took probably like six or seven photos of it. And it's crazy. It looks unreal. It's not the sun. It was like the next day. It was like him being like, yeah, well, I can if I want to, you know? Because he's been like haunting my dreams or he like really haunted my dreams for a while there. Lurking, you know? And I'd be like, would be cool if you could show up in a way that was like fun for me, you know? (laughs) In September 2020, a subreddit thread popped up. It quickly expanded to almost 400,000 members, becoming the 10th fastest growing subreddit that month. It was named after former Republican presidential candidate Herman Cain, who died from COVID-19 in July of 2020. And it's just one grim corner of the internet dedicated to showing users real-life consequences of being unvaccinated. Whether someone opted out of receiving the vaccine, be it for health reasons or family dynamics or any plethora of others, social media sites turned into a haven of misinformation. Facebook in particular struggled to weed out false content. And anybody with an email address and access to the World Wide Web took to their platform to voice their opinion. But the problem doesn't necessarily lie with those who are vaccine hesitant or resistant. In many instances, low reports of vaccine uptake in communities was due to structural inequality. This applies in other arenas as well, such as food insecurity, unhealthy weight, employment, and alcohol and drug misuse. Public shaming isn't a new concept, and this idea of third-party punishment can be a way of signaling our own virtue. Because when it comes to moral judgment, we tend to do it selectively, and often without the full context. If there's any truth that should stand out more than the rest, it's that context matters. And sure, it'd be a lot easier if we were all just divvied up into good and bad guy camps, the hero and subsequent villain. But when is life ever that black and white? When is shaming or this growing mob mentality ethically justifiable? Probably, like, one of the things I wanted to, like, talk about in this was, um, well, I'll just start by saying, I'll start by saying my dad was not vaccinated. He was very on the fence about getting vaccinated. I think that there, as we all know, was a lot of misinformation. And at the end of the day, the vaccines save lives. But I've had people come up to me who didn't know my dad died of COVID and say stuff like, people who were unvaccinated deserve to die. I firmly believed in vaccines, believe in vaccines. And I'm, you know, for better or worse, I listen to like my public health care officials. But I think what we should try to do as as a society and as people and in the climbing community, especially, is just like try to have a little bit of empathy and grace for experiences that we don't understand, regardless of politics. And like, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for religious people, actually, not that like all anti-vaxxers are religious people, but I think that we need to try to have space for those people and, and love too, because I just think that that's like the right thing to do. Like my situation with my dad, like he was in between a rock and a hard place being told two different things. He's confused, you know? Also, he didn't have a formal education. So it's like, how can you really sit back and judge what that person's choice was? I just think it's important for the climbing community to try to maybe not jump to conclusions. Just try to like take in information, learn things, try to understand both sides of the story and like have empathy for people because anyone who dies of COVID, like a nurse told me, I would not wish that on my worst enemy. 
just the, the death from COVID is really gnarly and it's not pretty. And it's really sad. I feel for all the people and family, family members who have lost someone. I was able to get my dad to register to get vaccinated and he was going to get vaccinated. It took a full on like child tantrum on the phone. I remember I just like, I was like, I'm fucking going for this. I'm going to cry until he says he's going to get vaccinated. And I did. And then he finally agreed to it. And it was during the time where vaccines had just come out and his uh, appointment was canceled. I mean, he'd always been the kind of guy that would like never even go get a checkup. He hated the doctor. So it was like pulling teeth to get him to go for the first time to sign up, you know? And at the same time, he had other people in his life that were really against the vaccine, like strongly against the vaccine. People who he cared and respected and people who I care about and respect too. And like, I think that that was a really hard, complex thing to go through. On the way to the hospital, he called me because he drove himself to the hospital, which broke my heart. Broke my heart to drive his car home at the end. You know, it was just like in the parking lot because he drove himself to the hospital. That made me really sad. And he told me, he was like, I'm just in between a rock and a hard place with you and named the other person who was trying to convince him not to get vaccinated. And so said that he was just stuck in between these two dialogues of like me trying to get him vaccinated and then the other people who were trying to keep him from getting vaccinated for reasons that were really meaningful to them. And he was just so like confused. So he put it off and then he got COVID. And anyways, he ended up in the hospital and I was terrified, you know. My dad is an artist. He was a lapidary artist. And so he makes all these cabochons, which are like, a cabochon is like the name for the stone that gets set into a necklace. But his were more like, they're so artistic that they're actually just like pieces of art in their own right. And so I would just like hold them all day long. <laughs> and at the time, like I wasn't sleeping and I was self-medicating with prescription drugs that were not prescribed to me until the end when he kind of became so delusional because of the disease that he would forget that he called. So he would like call me over and over and over again through the night. And I would just talk to him and leave my phone on sometimes. I started sleeping in our spare room so that I could be available to him at any hour. And anyways, uh, the, the, there were some highlights, like it seemed like he was gonna turn around for a second there. And at the time before he got sick, I was trying this route up at the monastery in Colorado. It's a route called Third Millennium and it's a really beautiful wall. I don't know if you've been there, but it's, uh, it's just like aesthetically stunning. And I had been trying this route. It's like goes up the middle of the wall it's the same wall that Grand Old Opry is on, which is a really famous climb. And Third Millennium is just to the left of it. But I think, I mean, all of the routes there are beautiful. But when I first saw that wall, I was like, what is that line? And it was goes up the middle and it climbs this like black streak. Just because I'm me, I had to do the easier one first. I was like, I got to do the 13C before I try the 13D. So, you know, I did that one year and then I came back the next season and started to try Third Millennium. And... Then my dad got sick and uh, I wasn't eating or sleeping or anything like that. I was like super emaciated and um, I went climbing a few times while he was in the hospital, maybe like twice, maybe more, I'm not sure. But the drive out there is a little long and you lose service at one point. So I, was, I remember that was really hard for me to like decide to have those climbing days, but I like felt like I really needed to escape in some way. And so I would like call the nurses and check in on him before I went out of service. And then I would do the hike into the monastery. Once I got to the crag, I would solo up the back. It's like a, probably like a five, six or something. And there's like a little bit of service. You can see the diamond and just sit up there. It's really beautiful, you know? And I would sit up there and talk to him on the phone. And then I would call him in between my tries. And my burns were pretty like emotionless, <laughs> you know, as you could probably imagine. But I was climbing well, I was like one hanging. And um, when my dad died, I, I tried it a little bit. It felt good to like robotically climb, but I didn't end up sending it until the next year. I mean, I was like a shell of a human, but um, I realized that sitting on top of that rock was ultimately like some of the last times 
that I talked to him. I was able to be there when he died. I flew to Oregon. They only allow you to see COVID patients when it's end of life. And actually we were really lucky that they did that for us. But um, Greg and I went to, to the Verdon after he died. It's funny, my therapist, like, she made me think of this, like, peaceful place where I'm, like, completely at ease. Like, emotional happy place I can go to if I feel stressed or something. And it definitely, like, I mean, the Verdun is, like, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. So I just put myself right there. I think it will always be a special place to me because I was going through what I was going through back then. I had some sweet grass from the Nez Perce Reservation, which is where we're from. So I would burn that. I brought it with me to the Verdun and I burned it every night so that he knew where to go. <laughs> so that he could like haunt the right person. <laughs> um, and I would like, you know, light it outside the window and like wave it around so, you know, I'd be like, just want him to know because I was lighting it the whole time. And um, anyways, that sweet grass will always make me think of this time in my life. I was actually like pouring him like a little bit of my beer every night in this little cup that was like terracotta. And so the cup would like absorb the beer and I'd be like, he drank it. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> he wanted that IPA. I mean, if I really loved him, I would pour him a whiskey because that's what he really likes. But um, in the spring, I was sort of starting to finally kind of feel, uh, I don't think, there's a right word to say how I, would, I was feeling, but uh, I was feeling ready to try hard in a climbing project again. We're gonna take a short break. We'll be back. Patagonia makes high-performance gear for climbing. From cragging essentials like the Kaliza and Mango Rock Pants to the redesigned Nano Air Light Hybrid Hoodie that keeps you comfortable when you're working hard in cold conditions. All of Patagonia's technical climbing products are designed and tested in partnership with their ambassador team. They're made to move, built to endure, and designed to have the lightest footprint possible. And like everything Patagonia makes, they're backed by a lifetime ironclad guarantee. Visit patagonia.com slash climbing to see the latest. We get support from BetterHelp to connect you to licensed therapists. They'll match you with the perfect therapist for a fraction of the cost of traditional therapy. You know who goes to therapy? Prince Harry, Emma Stone, Jenny Slate, Kesha, therapy is beautiful. Everyone should go to therapy. Go to betterhelp.com slash climbing to sign up and receive 10% off your first month. It helps support the show and it helps support you. I think that my dad really believed in me. He was really proud of me. And like, I know that he still is, la la la. He's still proud of you. But like, who's proud of me now? I have to be proud of myself. That's like a lot to carry. So that's probably the biggest thing. I miss texting him every day. Somebody wrote online, Jenny Brusso actually. It's super weird. The way that she talks about grief really resonates with me. I think talking about grief resonates with a lot of people, but like the words that she chooses really resonate with me. She said something like, I'm no longer me, I'm me without... That's how I feel. I'm no longer me, I'm me without him. I also had this crazy thing that happened to me that the morning after he died, I woke up, oh my God, that might be the worst I've ever felt in my entire life. It was not even like the moment that he died, but the, the next morning, waking up and realizing that like my worst nightmare had come true. I woke up that morning because I felt one of his rocks fall physically onto my chest bone. And I heard the noise and I felt the feeling. I woke up like grabbing my chest and then realizing that he had died. And I felt like he understood me more than anyone else. Like my husband understands me so well and that would be the only other person I can imagine like that would check that box for me. But like we were connected deeply. I have this video and I'm saying something about asking him about his connection to rocks and to mine. And he says, well, 
And he, like, looks at me as I'm filming him, and he goes, you know how connected we are. <laughs> so I feel like a part of me is gone. <laughs> I know that people say that about grief, but, like, man, we were just so fucking close. It's crazy. I think I, I well, I, I had always told my husband I would not be okay if my dad died, and that was, like, my biggest fear in life. In a way, it's like I have nothing else to fear now. Definitely, like, shortly after my dad died, I suddenly was no longer afraid of flying. I was like, I don't care. I can die in this plane. Who cares? <laughs> um, but, you know, I have a lot of love for my husband and my friends and stuff like that. I think that love, well, I think that grief is love, actually. Um, that's the crazy part about grief that we don't realize. It's like this deeper corner, this, like, side corner. It's actually not a side corner at all. It's like... It's like a whole other room of love in a house. Like you just didn't have the key to that door before grief. And it may hurt a lot, but it also, like I said, like it's like the colors are so, the spectrum of colors you can see are so much more broad. So many more colors. You're like the mantis shrimp all of a sudden. <laughs> mantis shrimp. <laughs> We're just like horses with the blinders on, on the side. And then you experience something like grief and then you see, you can see a lot more of the world actually. It's crazy because you feel like walking around and like living your life after you've lost someone close to you and experiencing grief on a really deep level. It's like there's just this knowing that you have a certain amount of perspective that others don't have. You don't want them to have it, you know, of course. But like you connect deeper with people who have gone through grief for sure. Like Eliza and I, you know, or other friends. It's a tough thing to see until you actually really see it. I was never good at being sad. Partly because my mom straight up told me not to be. But this is sad, man. Picture a wave in the ocean. You, know, you can see it, measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts when it passes through there and you can see it you know what it is it's a wave and then it crashes on the shore and it's gone but the water is still there the wave was just a, a different way for the water to be for a little while That's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean. Where it came from. And where it's supposed to be. Not bad, Buddhists. Not bad. None of this is bad. I think the part that scares me is I think that my identity as a Native American, it feels farther away. But having my dad around, it was like we were holding hands through this, you know? So now that he's not there, I have to get to a place where I am okay with my identity, whatever that is. It's just weird because it's like, most people just have like a normal grandma and grandpa situation, you know? <laughs> And I don't, and I'm not traumatized by it, but I did grow up with a dad that had depression and that did affect him in his death. You know, I think about that a lot. I think about that when I think about him being free. I think about that trickle down effect that we were talking about earlier. And I think about being unencumbered by it all. I kind of like joke about him chirping down at me or whatever, being like, you were right, God's not real. <laughs> <laughs> or he's like, you were wrong, you're fucked. <laughs> no living human knows what happens when we die. Do we enter eternal nothingness, free of emotional turmoil and floating through the universe in the elements or the stars? Or do we cycle back into another life and body, given another chance to do it all again? Nobody knows. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's what drives us to answer the question, what does living mean to you? And we mean all of it. The good, the bad, the endless conflict, occasional joy, 25 cent wing night. 
hopes, fears, gratitudes, platitudes, lonely days, your favorite song, weather patterns, TED Talks, and self-aware hip-hop references. Everything from disease, violence, vast memories, and the remembrance of things that are now gone. It's all one big endless travail, until it's not. Maybe we do get absorbed into universal consciousness, but until then, it all gets woven into one moment, one breath, one life. Tara's time in the Verdun proceeded going back to the monastery, back to third millennium, and back to one of the last places that she shared with her dad. I knew I wanted to go out there and try it again, and I didn't have partners. It's really hard to find partners for out there. So I just started mini-tracksing it, and I would go out there by myself. And those moments when I first started going out there, I would sit on top of the rock and set up the mini-tracks in the same place where I had been making those phone calls. I would kind of like sit there and see the birds and like think that they were us or whatever. The thing about mini tracking at your limit <laughs> is that as a, like alone, completely alone, is that you can really like let your emotions go. I am not a screamer in climbing at all. If anything, I'm like silent. Not that I'm saying that you can't be a screamer, but like I definitely try to be aware of like myself and like others at the crag and try to be respectful of the space around me and the people around me and like not try not to make it all about myself or something. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't bro I don't bro out much when like others are the crag, but I was like really getting into it when I was like on mini tracks by myself, which is actually kind of hard because it has like a V7 right off the ground. And so you always kind of felt like you were gonna, like the line would stretch and you would like hit the ground or something, but it didn't, it wasn't like that. And <laughs> I mean, you would just like softly hit the ground, right. you know, yeah, no. <laughs> it'd be like the wow. most anticlimactic, like, <laughs> weird. <laughs> um, and anyways, I like realized I had to start leading it. So I started climbing out there with Matt Samet and he's an awesome climbing partner. We're also the same height. So it was like really awesome to share beta with him. Like, I feel like I never climb with people who are my height. I'm completely average in every way. Like I'm five, six, you know, <laughs> But a lot of my female climbing partners are short, and my male climbing partners are 5'9". So there's nobody who's my size. <laughs> and, you know, it's just cool to share beta with somebody because I, I often find that I'm just too short to do the dude beta by a little bit. But I'm not short enough to do, like, the short beta. How it ends up going for me is I typically end up figuring out a way to do the dude beta, but I'm, like, really starfished. And that is like tricky for me. And anyways, Matt came in and he really helped with like the beta and situation with the, the root and everything. We both secretly agreed it's 14A and like, <laughs> not secretly, it definitely feels like closer to 14A, but it's a bit of an older root. So actually Tommy took 14A. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyways, I was having like the time of my life realizing that I was gonna do the route and I was so excited. And then I like one hung it from the third bolt to the top and I was like, oh shit, I'm like close. And as soon as I got close, it just hit me. As soon as I realized I could do the route, I realized that I would have to close a chapter that I didn't wanna close. And I like didn't really wanna send. I didn't wanna stop going there. Didn't wanna end trying the route because if I finished the route, would I finish the grief? It was crazy because like in an unexplainable way, doing that route became a really big part of my grief. And I started to kind of fear sending, which is fine because then I got really sick and I had to take a couple of weeks off. But I knew that like I needed to do the route for us, for like me and for my grief. Not for like me and my dad, but like me and my grief. <laughs> and, um, you know, of course, I, like, had this feeling, like, what's going to happen when I send? I don't know. Like, I'm probably going to cry is what I thought. That day, I had brought one of my dad's cabochons with me to the crag, and I climbed the route with it in my pocket. I don't remember which one it was, actually, but it sounds so dumb. But, like, at the rest, I was like, all right, we got this, you know? I don't know, just, like, talking to the rock. I stuck the move that I'd been falling on. And from that point to the top, it's 12B. So it's just like a short 12B that you could totally fall on. It has like bad feet, but I would like warm up on that part every day. So I felt pretty solid, but still like you could slip. Basically like got to the rest and had the 12B. And then I like sobbed my way through the 12B section. I was like 
grabbing holds and like actively sobbing as I was rock climbing. And it was so funny because like I got to the top and I like, as soon as I grabbed the anchor, it just was like went into like convulsions. It wasn't about the route or the difficulty. I mean, I've climbed, I, I first of all, climbing, climbing is important to me, but like climbing is not that important to me. Like I'm not gonna convulsively sob about like climbing a hard route. Like it's just not who I am. But I clipped the anchor and like, I couldn't even breathe. It was just such an unreal experience. Like I hated it and I loved it. You know, like I was happy to send like, a, it's a stunning route, but like the experience and the connection to my grief was such a moving experience that I've never, I never knew that climbing could like bring that out of me. And this guy, this guy, cause I was like, oh my God. I was like, I'm so sorry to everyone at the crowd. Cause I had just totally made like this complete ruckus, you know? And there were like other people climbing that. There was like somebody on like Grand Old Opry, I think at the time. And I'm like up there just fully like losing my shit. So I, I like apologized, which is of course like the first thing I did. And this guy's like, it's okay. Like I've totally cried before when I've sent a route. He was so nice, but like, I was like, that is just not at all like what is going on here. But then I just like sat at the top of the route and like cried more and came down and I haven't been back, but I'm gonna go back this spring actually, because uh, I'm gonna rebolt the route. <laughs> the bolts are like falling out of the wall, so. It's a really good reason to go back to this place that I like clearly can't let go of like Harry Potter. It feels like a Harry Potter situation. Like I have to just keep going there forever. I mean, I'm happy to go there forever. It's a beautiful place. I don't know if I'm strong enough, but I would totally go try Grand Old someday if I was fit again. But yeah, it just, it was just a, such a crazy experience. Like I just never, I just can't even explain like what that felt like, you know? In a way, I think that like my climber friends are like, you're just like obsessing over this climb because you want to send it, you know? And I think that like, I was so unwilling to close any door. I was so willing, unwilling to close any door because I was afraid that my dad might want to walk through it, that like sending that route would be closing a door. And like, what if he was trying to walk through that door? I am not like a woo-woo person. I don't believe in God. Like I barely think I'm a Pisces. Just kidding, I'm like super Pisces. Did your tone change? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, but I really started to have like crazy experiences after he died that felt pretty unreal. I mean, like the one I described uh, with the thing in the sky. And then, you know, it really felt like he was there in that moment. And and it's just like unexpectedly that route had become so woven into my grief and so woven into my dad and I's relationship and his death and like to me looks like the way that like the sweet grass is woven together and like it's just all tied together and burning off this like beautiful smell even though it's really painful. This episode is in memory of James Rhinevan. You don't necessarily have a super close connection with your like Native American heritage, but sometimes you feel like this is... I feel like I belong with nature. Because when I went back to the res, you know, I had a pretty spiritual feeling um, just being amongst the, the land and the river and the people, you know, the land yeah. was what first touched me and moved me. It's kind of like I belong here, like I belong to that place where my tribe is from. You know, the hardest route I've ever climbed is on original Nez Perce land. Where's that? In Idaho. Oh. This place in Idaho. The hardest route I've ever done. I didn't realize it until later, but it was, which I thought was kind of cool. That is you know? cool. I feel very zen when I'm doing it. I like to sit here and grind on a rock and let my mind wander sometimes. You know, people say they have a metaphysical property, and I do believe that. You know, I do think they have some type of metaphysical thing going on with you. What do you think about uh, your affinity for rocks and then mine? My affinity for rocks and yours? Yeah, don't you think it's interesting that we uh -huh. both have... Because <laughs> you like climbing rocks, and I like grinding and shaping them. Yeah. 
Well, you know how connected we are. Yeah. I was just wondering if you also felt like there was a connection. Oh, absolutely. I see a lot of myself in you. You're listening to For the Love of Climbing podcast. A huge thank you to Deuter, one of the leading backpack brands that will help you hit the trails with confidence and comfort. A big shout out to LA Outdoor for supporting the Access Fund and 1% for the Planet. And to Otsun, innovative gear engineered for climbing to improve your performance. And thanks to Patagonia. Not bound by convention, Patagonia is in business to save our home planet. Support companies who support this podcast. We couldn't do it without them. If you liked what you heard, you can leave a review on iTunes or give us a like. Like all good things, you can find us on the internet.